good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU's website at weru.org, as well as the WERU app for your smartphone. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am your host for Common Ground Radio. For today's show, we are listening to a recording of one of the keynote addresses from the 2020 Common Ground Country Fair. And this address was given on September 26, 2020, and is by Barbara Damrosh. Barbara is a farmer and co-owner of Four Seasons Farm in Harborside, Maine. She's also the author of many books, including The Garden Primer and Theme Gardens. And her keynote address is titled Power to the People, Drawing Strength from the Pandemic. Barbara is introduced by Chrissy Fowler. After her address, there is a Q&A period that is facilitated by both Chrissy Fowler and Bonnie Rukin, taking questions via social media. Barbara delivered her keynote address live from the Common Ground Country Fairgrounds in Unity, Maine. So here's Barbara Damrosh with Power to the People, Drawing Strength from the Pandemic. Um, Barbara Damrosh is a farmer and lives over in Harborside and she is part of the Four Season Farm. You may have heard of that. She and her partner, Elliot Coleman, do lots of amazing work. Barbara has written a book, The Garden Primer, and I'm just gonna hand it right over to you on this beautiful sunny day. Thanks for coming and being a featured speaker. Thank you very much, Chrissy, too. I really wanted to do this live, so I had a good excuse to visit this beautiful common ground, which I look forward to every late September. Um, right now, I'm surrounded by a merry band of excellent techies, but I miss the 25,000 people who would be here in a normal year. And I hope that they will all return uh, next year when it's safer. And I'm uh, very grateful to all of you for t tuning in. So I'm gonna actually read my talk today because there's a lot of things I really, really wanna say to you and I don't wanna leave any of them out. I don't wanna forget them. So here we go. For those of you who are on audio, I'm standing at a table filled with vegetables and, uh, and it's very handy. They even gave me a pile of onions to uh, use as paperweights if the, if the breeze comes up. So here we are, it's, uh, it's uh, September 26th and in a little more than a month, November 1st, we will fall back an hour when daylight saving time ends as usual. But this time there's a lot of controversy about it. Most people think that the purpose of daylight saving time is to save energy, but most studies say that it doesn't do that at all. So why bother? We've forgotten, I think, that the original reason for bothering had more to do with food shortages during both world wars, with so many farmers off fighting. Home gardeners were enlisted to plant war gardens in World War I, followed by victory gardens in World War II. Changing the clocks gave an extra hour at the end of each day for people to tend those home plots after they came home from their jobs. 
Many of them were housewives, newly enlisted into the workforce. And during World War II, they produced almost half of the nation's food in their victory gardens. Eleanor Roosevelt planted one on the White House lawn. Those gardens were more than just a footnote to our country's history. Home food gardening always surges in times of crisis, not just wars, but also times of economic disaster, like the stock market crash of 1929 and the ensuing Great Depression. People suddenly picked up their hoes and sowed vegetables en masse in 1973, after the oil embargo hit. They did it again in the recession of 2007-2008, brought on by the mortgage meltdown, when seed companies were swamped with orders for peas and carrots, not petunias and cosmos. In some way, it's a reassuring trend, because our urge to take more control over our own food production is a sane one in times of insecurity especially if it's right in our backyards. It was Henry Ford, of all people, who said, no unemployment insurance can be compared to an alliance between man and a plot of land. But the discouraging part is that in between these crises, the interest in food gardening declines. After World War II, our food supply, as we all know, became even more centralized. Farms were consolidated and relied heavily on the petrochemical fertilizers that emerged from the cauldrons of the gunpowder factories. Before the war, most Americans probably knew enough about gardening to plant those victory gardens with some degree of confidence and success. But all that changed. So how do we rank as gardeners now? I got my answer to that on a trip that my husband Elliot and I took in 1995. He had pioneered a lot of season extension techniques in American horticulture. So that January, we decided to follow the 44th parallel, which is the line of latitude on which we farm through France and Italy, <clears throat> which would naturally have the same day length we had at home. What varieties were they growing and how? My publisher gave us $5,000 toward the trip with the idea of our writing a book about what we found out. Now, Elliot and I do many things together very, very happily, including farming and travel. But writing is not one of them. So after two years of crossing out each other's sentences, we gave up on the book and gave back the money. But the information we gained as we visited countless farms and gardens was invaluable. What impressed me the most as we drove through both towns and countryside was that most homes had gardens. Even in January, we could see the blue-green foliage of leeks and winter greens, sometimes protected by low homemade tunnels of plastic stretched over wire hoops for protection. Clearly, France and Italy still had a gardening culture whereas ours had largely been lost in the distractions of modern life. Now, not all the food news in the good old USA has been bad. From the 70s on, more and more people have started to question the quality of industrial food, how it affects our bodies and the environment in which it's grown. The food movement, as it is commonly called, is no longer a hippie one or even an elitist gourmet one. It has broader reach and longer legs. 
There has been no let up in the trend towards small organic farms, which despite what people may tell you, can feed the world. Local farmers markets are still sprouting up everywhere. Traditional foodways are being protected and restored. Social justice has been added to the requirements for a righteous farm. We have a better food culture than we once did, though it is far from universal and we have a long way to go. Big Ag co-ops it at every turn in its advertising and its power over the USDA, which allows factory-like, soilless hydroponic farms and CAFOs to be certified as organic, as everybody grapples for that magic label. And where is home gardening in all of this? A bit of my own personal history will give you an idea of what I have observed. In 1976, like so many others, I read a book called Living the Good Life by Helen and Scott Nearing, which became the Bible of the Back to the Land movement. This caused me to leave a career of teaching and writing in New York City and move to Connecticut so I could grow my own food. I worked for an organic farm slash nursery and began writing exclusively about gardening. I wanted to start a vegetable farm, but had no money with which to buy land. Then, on July 9, 1991, I walked into Helen Neering's tiny greenhouse on the coast of Maine, and there was Helen and a farmer named Elliot Coleman, who was helping her tie up her tomato plants. We fell in love. Like me, Elliot had no money either when he had decided to farm back in 1968. But Helen and Scott had sold him a sizable chunk of their land for $33 an acre, the amount they had paid for it in 1953. Scott, as a radical economist, didn't believe in unearned income. Five months after we met, Elliot and I were married, and there I was, farming with, them, with him on former nearing land. Miracles continued to unfold. The year before, I had gotten a job on the PBS show, The Victory Garden, and I soon s swapped that for a show that Elliot and I hosted together on the Learning Channel called Gardening Naturally. We reached a whole new home gardening audience with that show that our books had not. Then, in 2003, I was sitting in a coffee shop in Washington, D.C. with the Washington Post's gardening editor, Adrian Higgins, and he asked me, how can we get gardeners to grow food? That was a turning point. That led to this 15-year run of the weekly column I wrote for the Post called A Cook's Garden. So, were the people gardening yet? In 2008, the mortgage meltdown, remember? I got a frantic call from my publisher saying that the sales of vegetable seeds, not flowers, were suddenly off the charts. And would we please co-author a book, Elliot and I, about growing your own food with recipes? After we stopped laughing, we thought, hey, maybe this is an opportunity. Magazines had been asking me for stories about growing your own food, but it always had to be from tiny plots, say 10 feet by 12 feet, because I was told anything more ambitious would scare people away. Elliot and I disagreed with that. Our approach would be, it's fine to start small, but plan big. You will not feed your family from a dainty little parterre. And that's what I say to you right now. Your first kitchen garden might 
only give you a summer of salads, which would be fine, but the next year it could give you enough to food your, feed your family for the year. How big would that need to be? The recommendation back in the Victory Garden days was that one acre could feed 40 people, and you would need 1,000 square feet to grow each member of the household's vegetable for the year. That's a little less than half the size of a tennis, singles tennis court per person, if that helps you visualize it. And your yield could approach twice that as you improve your skills and your soil. Your plot could be big enough to include vegetables that take up a lot of space, but are great survival food, such as winter squash. You choose them for food volume per square foot and storability, say cornmeal corn you can dry for winter, in addition to the more usual sweet corn. You'd grow enough open pollinated varieties that you could save seed from them in case all goes to hell and it's the only way to have a garden. The fact that after four years, we actually finished writing the book together and turned it in, and turned it in was a happy surprise. But guess what? You probably know what I'm going to say. The economy rebounded, the panic ceased, and the home food gardening craze was over. Like a fire drill when it ends and you all go back inside the building. What we had tentatively called how to feed from your garden, how to feed yourself from your garden in good times and bad, was considered a risky title. Nobody would buy it, they said. The book came out as the Four Season Farm Gardener's Cookbook from the garden to the table and 120 recipes. With the growing half of the book, half of it was about growing, only mentioned on the back cover. Food culture had beaten garden culture once again. So what do we do to change that? I was born in 1942 as part of the last generation of people who could actually learn about gardening, its value and its techniques, from their parents, as I had. That's a handicap. Books, videos, and other media certainly can play a role, but I often think that the best new horticultural idea I've encountered in my lifetime was Alice Waters' edible schoolyard in Berkeley, California. Elliot and I were invited to visit it and watched a class of hyperactive tweens totally engrossed in planting, trellis building, and tending chickens. One little boy came up to me with a chicken and, and handed it to me and said, you can feel its heart. We then sat in a class where eight-year-olds prepared a meal of wonton soup, stuffing the wontons with vegetables they had grown and chopping up more of them for the broth. We then sat down with them and enjoyed their delicious meal. What is a more democratic way of teaching a valuable subject to all citizens than incorporating it into our public schools? That was Alice's dream, and it has spread. The very small town I live in has a school garden with a greenhouse and a part-time gardening teacher on staff. A number of neighboring towns do as well. Another bright flash of hope along my life's journey was seeing Michelle Obama launch her all-season home garden project on the White House lawn, where she brought local school children in to learn and enjoy gardening. And I have faith in organizations like the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. 
MOFCA is the oldest regional organic ag organization in the country and also has the most members, partly because it has always offered educational outreach to home gardeners as well as to farmers, both young and old. There's also some possibility that things will change on their own. Let's take today, September 26, 2020. It's been half a year since COVID-19 struck, fueling much anxiety about disruption in the food supply. So it's no big surprise to anyone that we're seeing the latest huge spurt in new home vegetable gardens. My first awareness of it came with a conversation with someone at Johnny Selected Seeds, a national seed company located in Maine. Vegetable seed sales were through the roof just as in 2008, but at such high volume, much higher volume, that the company was briefly paralyzed. Most significantly, as reported by the Bangor Daily News on April 3rd, half were from new gardeners. At local nurseries, transplants were selling out too. Our farm set up a little emergency seedling stand at the beginning of the driveway for our neighborhood. Our farm, Four Season Farm, faced many challenges during the early days of the epidemic. Our farm manager, Elliot's daughter, Clara Coleman, arranged two-week quarantine sites for newly hired workers and worked out safe ways for customers to shop at our open-air, semi-covered farm stand on Saturday mornings, requiring face masks and distancing. As our local food co-op and some restaurants also found ways to do business again, our, our business did fine and many other farms did too. But we had to close the winter market that Clara managed in a large glass house in the nearby town of Blue Hill. Even when moved outdoors, the density of the crowd posed more of a risk to shoppers than our consciences would allow. It is nice to imagine that when COVID-19 is under control, life will be more, quote, normal again. But will it? This crisis does not have just one cause. It's a big, ugly dump truck load of trouble piled up on us. Not just the pandemic itself and its consequent ills, such as mental stress, isolation, and joblessness, but ills that come from other directions such as the unmasking of racial, racial violence woven into the fabric of our country and the deepening of a political divide. Add to that national disasters, natural disasters, wildfires, drought, flooding and wind damage from this year's extra hurricanes. All these the result of something we call climate change. What a feeble name for what I prefer to call the human domination of the planet and a way of life that threatens all its species, including our own, ripping apart the entire web of life. As of today, September 26, 2020, we are tasked with coming up creative new solutions to a new state of the world. We must learn to live locally without obsessive travel and fossil fuels. We need more small organic farmers making the soil better than they found it and help repair the damaged earth, water, and air. But they'll need land, even if they have no funds to buy it. 
Some solutions already exist beyond the homestead model. Farms can be collectively run by a group of like-minded folks. Incubator farms provide new farmers with a few acres plus shared equipment and marketing space so that they can build their skills before they take the ownership plunge and better succeed when they do. Farm link programs match landless farmers with people who have acreage they'd like to see farmed, not as tenant farmers, but as the source of an asset to the landowner's own lives as well. There's even a mini trend among land developers in which a housing project offers an, as an amenity, not a golf course, but a small farm that provides each unit with wholesome food just a few steps away. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and I'm your host, CJ Walk. For today's show, we are listening to a recording of the keynote address given by Barbara Damrosh at the 2020 Common Ground Country Fair. This address was given on September 26th and is titled Power to the People, Drawing Strength from the Pandemic. Barbara is about to finish her address where it will be followed by a Q&A period facilitated by Bonnie Rukin and Chrissy Fowler. The need to provide space for farms in urban areas has attracted a great deal of attention. I learned a lot about its potential while a while back when I visited a demonstration farm in Kansas City run by a woman named Catherine Kelly for the Center of Urban Agriculture. A small group of people, she explained, has been painting a terrible picture of what an urban farm can look like. For them, a farm means massive fields of corn, soybeans, and milo, that's sorghum. They have no frame of reference for urban farming. But if you show them little farms that are patchworks of highly productive crops, she feels, people will embrace the idea. She also showed me a large greenhouse on site that provided city gardeners with light, warmth, and tables for seed starting. A diverse, congenial crowd of people was busy making transplants. That's the kind of creation, creative solutions that we need. I have sometimes read about creatures that are inherently savvy about imminent events, like the animals that race inland and upland when they sense from far away that a tsunami is coming or dogs that can tell you if you're about to have an epileptic fit. I would like to think that we too have some innate scrap of good sense that tells when the outlook is dark to head for the nearest piece of earth and make it grow food. Suddenly the reasons why it's impossible start to disappear. I don't have time turns into how can time be made? My kids won't eat garden food turns into they might if they help to grow it. Other obstacles are more daunting. The yard is tiny. It's shaded by trees. There is no yard. That's when you need a new idea. Find a gardening partner with a bigger yard where you could both share in the labor and what the garden yields. Or borrow a plot to it in exchange for food and do the gardening yourself. Or if you can't physically rip up your big lawn and put vegetables on it, make a partner of someone else who can. You'd think an enlightened country would guarantee that every citizen 
as the right to a plot to grow food on. Community gardens and vacant lots in city parks have been around for quite a while. Some have waiting lists, so we need more of them. Any kind of institution with a lawn could host community garden plots. A school, a hospital, a bank, a church, a corporation, a factory, a retirement home, a trailer park, anything, even in the city. The Victory Garden Show I mentioned built its first TV set by putting raised beds in the asphalt parking lot of WGBH in Boston before it moved to director Russell Morash's suburban yard. The edible schoolyard was also asphalt before Alice Waters took a jackhammer to it. Well, not her personally. If your plot is still too small, there are gardening techniques that let you make the most of limited space. Growing vegetables such as beans, cucumbers, and tomatoes vertically on trellises greatly multiplies their yield per square foot. Cut and come again crops like spinach and kale give you a longer and more bounteous harvest than say a row of head lettuces that once you pick them, don't regrow. Twofer crops like beets and turnips where you can eat both the roots and the leaves, obviously give you more food. Interplanting two crops can double the space. Planting a quick-growing one like scallions in the same bed as a slow one like Brussels sprouts. The first will be harvested before the second one can shade it out. After ripping out an early crop such as spinach or lettuce, fill the empty bed with a fall one such as cabbage or broccoli. In fact, any time a spot is empty, fill it with something else. Put up fruits and vegetables in glass jars, or freeze them, or dry them. Extend the garden's life with simple season extension devices, such as cold frames, quick hoops, and simple greenhouses. Landscape with edibles. Train grape vines on the arbor. Grow berry bushes along your fence, and plant fruit trees for shade. But if well tended, even the most utilitarian food garden will be so beautiful that it deserves a place of honor in the front yard, if that's where the most space is and the most sun. Sometimes lack of confidence will deter a would-be gardener more than any real barrier. It has become normal to outsource so much in our lives, fixing the car, fixing the roof, but growing food is one of the few things that are actually easy to do for yourself. Many people don't believe that because gardening is so often portrayed as a battle with nature, one that those without the mythical green thumb will surely lose. And that's because food growing has strayed so far from nature's program. Good gardens should rely more on biology than chemistry. They are built on the principle of fertile living soil, teeming with bugs, beetles, ants, worms, and a celestial choir of billions of microbes singing hallelujah. Creating that kind of soil is the foundation of your garden, not from purchased inputs, but from great amounts of organic matter you produce yourself in a compost pile. Crop rotations, green manures, cover crops, natural mulches are all sound organic practices that will give you a bountiful, healthy harvest. 
Organic gardening is so often portrayed as a list of no-nos. Don't spray with this, don't dust with that, and yeah, don't. But the real point is to make your soil so good and your plants so healthy that you don't need those poisons. Weeds, yes, there will be weeds, but here's what to do. Plan A, cultivate the soil between your plants frequently by lightly stirring the soil surface with a small sliver-like hoe, such as a collinear hoe, to halt weeds when they are tiny. Plan B, if you get distracted and fail to do this, and the weeds take hold to the point where you are overwhelmed by the problem and don't even want to go into the garden, play a little mental trick on yourself. Tell yourself to go out to the garden and weed for just half an hour, no more. The way the dark soil looks when you have cleared a patch of it, and the way the plants look when you have freed them from competition, and the order that you have created will lead you up and down the rows, and you may find it hard to stop weeding, even as the night starts to fall. A weeded garden, not to mention a basket of delicious just-picked produce, seems like a triumph at a time when it's easy to feel powerless. But imagine what it would be like if we all did it. How strong we would feel to have a big chunk of our food supply and the quality of it squarely in our own grubby hands. I haven't heard anyone saying the Democrats are planting gardens or the Republicans are planting gardens. For once, this is not something that falls along party lines. And for once, it's good news. I don't know what the next few years will bring. But when we do come out ahead of this mess, life is likely to be different in ways we don't know yet. And I hope they are the result of creative thinking, good science, truth-telling, and a willingness to co cooperate and collaborate with each other. And I hope that when life returns to some form of normal, and I drive by your houses, I hope that I might catch a glimpse of a garden and you in it. Thank you very much. So unless I missed it, you modestly omitted that you have written this Bible, which I'm sure that many of you count on and keep at arm's length through the gardening season. Um, Barbara wrote the first edition of this in 1988, if yeah, I'm correct, yeah. and the most revised edition in 2008. And it offers many different opportunities for you to understand your garden from beginning to end each season. So please know that she touched on many different things about others sharing ways to garden, but that she has quite a bit of knowledge stored in herself as well. And you can share that with her at some point um, and help yourselves as you move on. So we have questions for you. Good, I love questions. <laughs> I just hope I can answer them. Um, it's funny, sometimes um, I forget something and I, I go and say, what does she say? And I look it up in the book. <laughs> okay, well we have, um, we have Susan from Facebook asking, in your formative times moving through this, how did the nearings influence you? Well, they're book. 
I mean, totally, you know. But uh, by the time, well, I mean, that's what I left the city because of. You know, I moved to Connecticut and started growing my own food. That's a big career shift. You know, I'd been a college teacher, a freelance writer, stuff like that. And I was much happier as a gardener. But the, the, unfortunately, uh, Scott died in 1983, uh, a considerable time before I uh, went up to, to meet Helen. But she was there. Uh, she was the most amazing person. She was, she was in her early, well, she, let's see, she was like 80, uh, 82, 92 when I met her? No, not quite. She was in her late 80s. In any case, um, I, I was her close neighbor for four years. And I helped her with her gardens sometimes. We had many conversations. I wrote the foreword to her cookbook. Uh, I mean, she was just extraordinary. She, she had built this an immense house and, and walled garden herself. She was an expert mason. And she was wheeling around wheelbarrows and just bouncing around like a teenager, even at that late age. And I think she would, could easily have matched Scott's 100 years, which is what he was when he died, if she hadn't had a car accident. Mm -hmm. So... Um, which was tragic, but but I really I really loved her. <laughs> and you brought her with you as you moved forward. Clearly, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and she had wonderful thoughts in her in her cookbook, uh, where she kept things very simple. And you know, people would show up, and she'd always feed them. She was very generous, and she'd just add a little water to the soup, or you know, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, she, you know, if she didn't have time for dessert, she just put out apples. And I will, I often think of that when I'm trying to feed my farm crew or drop-ins. <laughs> I just, uh, just put out some apples. Keep it simple. <laughs> or melons or blueberries. And yummy. <laughs> yeah, keep it simple. Yeah. So I have a personal and maybe challenging question. Um, how would you encourage consumers who are very um, supportive of local produce and farmers and have the ability to um, support them financially um, but may not um, be Maybe doing that beyond the consuming of uh, beyond buying produce can you can you suggest how they could strengthen this local food economy people that may not be growing their own food but really believe in the local food economy and want it to be vibrant and well, sustainable? Um, just tell their friends to support the farmers markets. Uh, farmers markets are a wonderful thing. I mean, they're, we hated to have to sh shut ours down um, because of COVID, because um, people got, had meetings there, uh, got coffee there, chatted, brought their kids, there were kids running around everywhere. It was a wonderful scene. And, you could, you could offer to take somebody to one of those if they don't know about them already, or, or take the kids to visit a farm. I remember I was teaching at Middlebury College, and there was a farm all the moms visited with their kids when it was lambing time because you could see the baby lambs. You know? So a lot of farms will let you come and see what they are doing and you know, that kind of thing. Um, but as far as supporting them goes, I think they're doing a pretty good job of supporting themselves, a lot of them, uh, just, you know, 
let let them go at it. Don't put up any hindrances to it. Uh, you know, uh, they're part of your your community. Have you um, experienced more interactive ways to bring the public in that have worked well for you in well, educational ways? Uh, that's a good question. I think just by making it, uh, having an open door policy has helped. Um, we've been a little more shy about that since COVID, but people have been respectful. They don't walk into buildings, they wear masks, as do we if we are around visitors. Um, having an on-site farm stand um, was a decision we made, even though we were very far from a lot of our p potential customers, because we wanted to s show them what we do. You know, a lot of people back then thought organic farms um, were a, a sort of adorable, but, uh, you know, the produce was going to be full of holes, there was going to be bugs everywhere, and, and you know, uh, we wanted them to see what a well-farmed thing was all about, and I think they were pleasantly surprised, and it, it, um, I think it, it, it explained organic to them just by looking at it. But we, were, we also, especially Elliot, would, would always stop and, and talk to people who came, and sometimes you couldn't stop him. There would be something I wanted him to do, and he'd be standing there talking to the people, you know. But that's him. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And Clara's the same way. Um, his daughter Clara, is, is, as our farm manager, interacts really well with customers and um, answers questions, as do our crew. We have a great crew. It can be anywhere from five, six people, not counting me and Elliot and Clara, during the summer, and then we go down to about three <clears throat> plus us in the wintertime. Um, and, and so I, we, we feel that <clears throat> having work, you know, it's funny, Bonnie, uh, initially when we uh, started the farm, we thought, well, we're going to do all the work ourselves. And, and that was fine. You know, we, we could have gone on that way, keeping the scale to what we two could handle. And then uh, I believe it was Rob Johnson, the founder of Johnny Selected Seeds, who said, this is all well and good, but, you know, you guys could be educating a whole new crop of farmers if you take on people. So we did, not on a volunteer basis, uh, but as paid workers. And we do the whole, um, you know, FICA, workless comp, you know, all of that kind of business stuff at the farm. And, and we have had hundreds and hundreds of people over the, well, the farm is over 50 years old now. You know, uh -huh. and they're all out there. A lot of them are farming or doing something related to agriculture. And, and, and it has nourished them in so many ways. So we're very proud of them. They're like a, having an enormous crowd of children. We hear from them. They come back. and uh, The kids want us to have a kind of 50th anniversary party. <laughs> we're kind of into uh, uh, peace and quiet. Uh, not keeps keep things simple, you know, so who knows. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and I am your host, CJ Walk. Today's show is a recording of the keynote address given by Barbara Damrosh at the 2020 Common Ground Country Fair. Her keynote is titled, Power to the People, Drawing Strength from the Pandemic. At this point in the recording, we are in the Q&A session, which is facilitated by Bonnie Rukin, as well as Chrissy Fowler. 
Well, I'm, I'm aware that our birth years are two years apart, so I'm, I'm curious about what you see as your next life chapter, knowing that you have been engaged in so many chapters oh, through this. That's, you must know me better than I think. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something. <laughs> um, I'm, I really love to paint. Um, I'd like to do more of that. Uh, I still, the, the one constant has been writing. I've been writing since, you know, I got out of college. And um, that, that will continue, I'm sure. Uh, let's see. Uh, I, I go back and forth about growing flowers. Now, it seems like I kind of dumped on flowers a little bit here. But that's only because I really want people to start to grow food as well. I've actually had a small off and on flower business at our farm, uh, growing them myself and making bouquets and selling them at the stand or the co-op or the market, you know. So um, I'm kind of, everybody's, Elliot's trying to get me to stop doing it because <laughs> it's so much work. Uh, but. Um, there will always be that little component. And who knows what, there, it might be something completely different, you know. Your passions will guide <laughs> well, you. Well, <laughs> who knows? Hopefully for the better. <laughs> well, we had one question to um, repeat the name of this book. Um, the Garden Primer, 2008 edition by Barbara Dam Damrush. So people can use this if they haven't yet. Barbara, I was listening and I was struck by, um, I was struck by two different things. I was struck by your encouragement for all of us to sort of stick with it. So in other words, once the transition has happened, like what I heard you saying was that there's been a, a shift and a kind of resurgence and a reminder, oh, we could be a little self-sufficient, which isn't such a big leap for those of us in the Northeast who are kind of accustomed to that self-sufficiency. Um, and what you were saying was let's not make it like a fire drill let's make it like oh we made the shift and now we're not going to go back inside and do the same things we yeah. just were doing right but we're going to remain uh, focused on that and i think um one thing i was thinking about was and you brought in was the education and children and um mm -hmm. you know agriculture education programs in schools uh and there are so many of those around um but the question i had is um and I think you spoke to it some, but I guess I'd like you to reiterate, what, what can we do as, and it ties in with Bonnie's question, those of us who are passionate about it, what can we do to make sure that we do keep moving in that direction instead mm -hmm. of saying, oh, well, thank goodness that's over. Let's go back to our other plan. Um, but to keep having us take those little steps and little steps and, and expanding, as you were saying, the garden, uh, how can we, what, what are things that we could do? What would you say, hey, try this? If for those of us who want to encourage it in ourselves, like our own practices, but also helping the people around us do well, that as I well. Think, you know, having it be as local and community oriented as possible is, is important. Um, things that are done through, you know, say some farm link program are great, but what if that were a local bulletin board on which you could post um, a notice that said, I have a big, I have a great big farm area or, or yard. Is there anybody who would like to work it for me? I'd, I'd love to have the food that I could pick right away and eat it. Or, or I want to have a garden or I want to have a small farm. Is there anybody looking for that, you know? 
I mean, approach somebody in the grocery store and, and meet somebody you know enough to gauge whether or not they uh, are, would be even you know, amenable to something like that and suggest it. And, and it would be the kind of word of mouth thing uh, among neighbors and that just strengthen a community. And then when they're having, somebody is having trouble with their garden, uh, help be there to advise them, uh, give them pointers. Uh, sometimes people, friends, just say, can I just work in your garden today or on your farm? Uh, you know, uh, what was it, last year or the year before, one of our great chefs, uh, Devin Finnegan at Aragosta, said, listen, I, I want to learn how to dig dahlias. I'm going to come and help you do it. So she came over twice and helped me dig the dahlias. And it made it go a lot faster because, um, you know, I had somebody to talk to and, uh, and she learned something and she's now, you know, doing her own. Yep. Uh, so that one-on-one. On one. And so that kind of one-on-one -on -one thing too. Yep. And, yep. Um, you know, there's garden clubs, which are good. And it, there's always one person, man or woman, that really, somebody say, she actually has a really great garden. And it's usually somebody, somebody dressed the way we're dressed right now, you know. But, and I don't want to diss it because they're, they're all nice people. And, and actually, I have spoke in front of some that are extremely down to earth, like mm -hmm. Deer Isle, Maine. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, mm -hmm. those, were, those were people who had fingernails like mine. Uh -huh. <laughs> So like more of the more more geared toward I think what I hear you saying is that um, what we can do is support things that are really uh, geared toward the nourishment part and the sustainability pieces as well as all that beautiful eye candy and when you look around and it's so perfect. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about my I have an apartment and my landlord has an incredible garden which is like eye candy and um, and uh, but he does a CSA so and I'll hear a car pull into the driveway and I'll look out and I say oh. It's, it's that person and, and it's a self-serve pick your own it's like their own garden but it's at our house um, mm -hmm. and so maybe small-scale things like that too can help people just yeah. keep that momentum growing yeah growing some great way to have a network uh-huh yeah uh, one thing I always like to do well I used to do it more I think but if, if a single crop was suddenly um, coming in, in in great amounts I have a sort of a party that celebrated the first melons or the first tomatoes or the the corn or, or whatever it is and and um, I, that kind of gets people excited we have a, a community just on our road where we have potlucks yep. regularly yep. You know. right now it's uh, distanced uh, chairs in somebody's lawn or or porch or something and I don't know if we keep having days like this maybe we can go on for a, a couple of uh, more months, but uh, it's hard in a main winter, isn't it? It it can be tricky in a main winter, and we're, we're, but we will adapt. You know, we'll figure things out I as we, we will. as we do. Yeah. Um, I I wondered also. I was um, I was you know yesterday I listened to Leah Penniman's talk or watched I did it too. and listened. She was great. <laughs> she just smiled the whole time, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so just made me want to do whatever she said. It was and, very positive. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and I think, uh, you know, we here in Maine have an advantage most of the places we live because there is land that we can work on. And, but she was talking about uh, urban, you know, urban gardens and, mm -hmm. um, and helping people grow food in, the, in a city environment. Right. Um, 
and maybe that ties into Bonnie's question about the uh, about how can we support you know maybe supporting programs like that as well. Oh, definitely. Uh huh. Well, I, on her website, uh, Leah's uh, Soul Fire Farm, she has a long list of organizations that, uh, if you want to lend a hand or your dollar or something, you know, you can contact them. Yeah. And that's all, that's all up still on the MAFCA site that right. would be accessible there that you right. can find all those links. Yeah, the, 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 the city thing is interesting. The, the people who do community gardens are always trying to take, to get a, a step ahead of the bulldozer, you know? A vacant mm -hmm. lot is like real estate, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. But when, when, it, when it happens, it can be wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times when you go to those community gardens, there's a lot of, of diversity, uh, either because of the neighborhood or just because a lot of recent immigrants come with the knowledge of gardening and, and they're used to being able to grow their own food to some degree. And, and so that's, it's kind of fun to visit, you know, and see different kinds of foods being grown too. And it's here in Maine as well, in Lewiston, Auburn. We've, we've been working closely with the Somali Bantu refugee population, and um, they, are, they are increasing their farming capabilities and their market capabilities, mm -hmm. and, and the world is waking up to participating. Right. So that's a source of hope for oh, me oh, personally. I think that's, that's an amazing source of good hope, uh, a city where there's been of getting, taking, you know, getting used to being a sanctuary city, and um, it can have very positive outcomes if people get together and till the soil. And speaking of positive, there have been a number, I've been told um, via <laughs> the chat box, that there have been many notes coming through of personal appreciation for you and all of your work and pioneering leadership through the years. So know that the questions may not be as full as the appreciation but that's very much there although we do have, we some, do questions have some questions now yeah oh, okay there is a question about uh, land ac land access actually yeah. um so andrew is wondering about what you think in terms of current land access questions facing young growers in maine uh, in particular um older folks who are still there and maybe they don't want to um go and be part of that and questions about land access mm -hmm. i guess would be questioned um the older folks who are looking for land or looking for people? Look, to... the land is not available because people still want to stay on their land. Um, oh, oh. For example, if I had a farm. That's where, you know, you might, it might be suggested to them that they have somebody come in and have a garden or mm -hmm. even a small farm. Uh -huh. uh, if they don't have children to pass it on to, that's always an issue. It's an issue with farmers, too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, something we think about, but um, just, uh, you know, my, my mother was in a retirement community in Blue Hill called Parker Ridge, and, and they had built raised beds, and you could uh, put your, re you could reserve one for yourself, or half of one. My, my mother had one, and, and then she, uh, she went back to half a bed when mm -hmm. she couldn't garden as much, um, or she couldn't eat up the amount of food that she produced. Uh, the chef had his own bed, you know, who, uh -huh. who cooked for them. Yep. I mean, every, every place like that should have that, if they can, possibly can, you know? 
wherever um, you can. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think there are some um, interpersonal issues that come up because of our industrialized food economy and our capitalist um, individualized society where generationally earlier the intersection of generations was always part of community life but yes. but now we're sometimes isolating young people on the land with older people on the land and mm -hmm. there may be issues even though the land is there and the two components of people that there's there's not an acceptance of working together and living together. So I, yeah. I think that's that's a piece of attention that needs to be developed well, or redeveloped, remembered. Remember, <laughs> really. I, mean, I think gardening is a great way to bring people together, generations, uh, strangers. You and know. it's certainly our history. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what Thomas Jefferson called us a nation of farmers. That was a long time ago. We're not a nation of farmers anymore. We're uh, part of the global farm economy, you know. <laughs> There's been intention be, yes. for, for us to forget yes, those yes. connections, clearly, yeah, for, totally. for years, but and I, the I hope really is bringing it back. It, 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 you know, everybody has a local school, you know. Uh, if you could sort of light a fire under the idea of building a greenhouse, you know, since it is Maine, and it, I mean, the, the question of the Maine winter, um, Yes, we're very rural. You know, that's something going for us. But win winter, uh, Elliot ran a, a, a school farm in Vermont before I knew him. And he was constantly, you know, he taught gardening, uh, farming, really. Um, they had livestock and everything. And he was constantly trying to hurry up spring and um, delay winter. And that's how we developed all those you know, a cold frame inside of a greenhouse and all the, you know, the, the technologies he learned from Europe where they were already gardening and farming that on a small scale mm -hmm. and brought them back and started to popularize that in the U.S. And, and his, his whole um, inspiration for it was that job at that school because it was of a necessity. And, and, and of course, it's very relevant to, to Maine. We actually live in a, a fairly mild um, part of Maine because of the ocean. It's, uh, it is very slow to warm up in spring, so our springs are slower than even the town next door inland. Uh, but it's great in fall right now, you know, we're just going like gangbusters. Well, it's wonderful to have you here and to know that you are presenting a living legacy to our audience today and that we can continue on together to uh, create new life chapters that relate to all of this. But thank you so much. Oh, it's such a treat to thank have you, you here too. in person. And it for coming. Great pleasure to talk to you. So thank you all for listening, and uh, goodbye and good gardening. This has been Common Ground Radio. Thanks for tuning in to our show today. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org, as well as the WERU app for your smartphone. I would like to take a moment here in the last minute of the show to say that as we roll into 2021, MOFCA is celebrating its 50th anniversary as a local grassroots organization focused on organic farming and gardening, its interdependence with a healthy environment, the importance of local food production, and how it all ties into building thriving communities.
MOFCA is in the process of collecting stories from the community about involvement with MOFCA over the past 50 years and how we have all helped to build and continue to build the organic farming and gardening movement here in Maine and beyond. For more information or if you're interested in contributing your story, you can find more details at www.mofka.org as well as on MOFCA's social media platforms. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month and stay tuned for more great programming.